Nurses struggling without PPE, the frantic search for hospital ventilators, even the dreaded ping from NHS Test and Trace. To most of us, these memories represent some of the worst of the COVID pandemic. But for a select few companies, they were an opportunity to make millions. More than half a million pounds of taxpayers' money was paid to the firm Public First at the start of the pandemic. Mr Cummings was a friend of the firm's bosses. There's a £200 million contract that was given to PPE MedPro that was recommended by Baroness Moan. The Department of Health and Social Care awarded the company a contract worth £473 million to provide freight services for the supply of PPE and medical equipment. Consultancy firms won over £700 million worth of government COVID contracts to do things like run the test and trace system and vaccine rollout. This February, ministers dropped restrictions on Whitehall spending on consultants, allowing these firms to potentially rake in millions more. Public sector expenditure on consultants is not as transparent as I would like it to be, but it's probably between five to seven billion. There are phrases like the shadow government, you know, whereby consultants are actively involved in shaping policy, even shaping legislation. I think it's both a justified worry and a fair criticism that the impact of consultants has been to hollow out the state. So, why is the government so dependent on consultants? Whose interests do they serve? And how worried should we be about their effect on public life? Welcome to the New Economics Podcast. This week we're asking, have we been conned by consultants? I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay with us. So I'm really pleased this week to be joined by Rosie Collington, PhD candidate at UCL's Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose and co-author of new book, The Big Con, How the Consultancy Industry Weakens Our Businesses, Infantilizes Our Governments and Warps Our Economies. Hi, Rosie. Hi, thank you so much for having me. No worries. Thanks for being with us. Really excited to dive into this one. So Let's get started. I mean, unless you work at one, most people probably don't spend their days thinking about massive consultancy firms like Deloitte or McKinsey or KPMG. So um, why did you and your co-author, Mariana Mazzucato, think this was an important topic to look into? I think like many people, we had both separately come into contact and encountered lots of people working in these organizations. Um, and this was particularly true for me, you know, as a, as a graduate of political science degrees, I saw lots of my friends were going straight to work for these firms straight out of university. And we both professionally, when we had been working in kind of policy circles and working with governments had been at tables where people from these organizations were there and we we were thinking why are they there and when we started looking into this we realized that the scale of this sector had just grown massively and so much so that you know by 2021 the global market for consulting services was estimated to be somewhere between 700 and 900 billion dollars a year and that's probably quite a conservative estimate, but it's also the best one we have. So we kind of realized, okay, this is now a serious industry. This is a big sector and not many people are looking at it and what its relationship is to capitalism and to governments and how it has transformed the way that we're thinking about the economy. So for people listening to the podcast who might be unfamiliar with these big firms um, or familiar with the firms, but have no idea what they actually do, could you just, you know, tell us quite explicitly, what do they do and and how are they used by businesses and, and public? 
public bodies at the moment? This is a big question, because if you look at most sectors in our economy, if you look at government, if you look at different types of things that governments do from administration to delivering frontline services to regulating for example, we find consultancies pretty much everywhere. We find consultancies in the NHS at local levels, also within central government, um, in the Department of Health, as we saw during the pandemic. So the roles that they play vary massively. We describe them in the book as playing different functions or doing different things that center around outsourcing, advising, and legitimating. So when I say outsourcing, that would be, for example, when a government body or another organization, a company perhaps, lacks the capacity or feels that they lack the capacity to do something internally. And so they turn to one of these companies um, and contract them to do it. Often they are viewed as well, the second function as advisors, as kind of an objective source of expertise in a particular area. And they'll be contracted as these kind of experts, when often they might not necessarily have that expertise. This is one of the issues that we delve into in the book. The final role that they are often put to, and this is particularly pertinent in business, but it is also something that affects policymakers and politicians and how their decisions come to be implemented is a legitimation function. So by this, we mean that when, for example, a business executive wants to implement a decision, but it might be controversial internally. So this could be a restructuring of an organization that might see lots of people lose their jobs, or it might be a new strategy to help maximize shareholder value, for example. They will turn to the consulting industry or a particular company to help develop the case to legitimize their decision. Okay. So in a nutshell, would you say that broadly what they do is kind of, you know, the tagline would be whatever you're doing will help you do it better? In theory, yes. Mm -hmm. Well, that's what it's supposed to be. That's what they would say it is. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. Okay. Very good. Uh, So we mentioned some of the COVID contracts that were handed out to consultants during the first couple of years of the pandemic, including the bungled test and trace program. And the pandemic, you know, did draw a lot of attention to these mysterious government contracts and, you know, what they were and where they were going. Can you tell us a little bit more how these consultancies firms are kind of gaining in notoriety in, in recent years? Yeah. So as you mentioned, during the pandemic, many people became aware of the kinds of things that consultancies are contracted to do in government. We saw them in the UK involved in everything from PPE procurement to even reviewing the medical ethics review process for the National Health Service. And Deloitte in particular was receiving these massive contracts at one point earning a million pounds a day for its contracts for test and trace, which an inquiry by the Parliamentary Public Accounts Committee found had not achieved its main objective to help break chains of COVID-19 transmission and enable people to return to a normal way of life. A Conservative peer during the pandemic, this is someone who also had a role as a health minister, even described at the kind of outset of the pandemic, how the civil service had become infantilized by its use of consultancies and the reliance was depriving our brightest public servants of opportunities to work on some of the most challenging, fulfilling and crunchy issues. But the use of consultants in government during the COVID-19 pandemic was not something that was new. And in fact, it's been steadily increasing over a number of decades, notwithstanding a couple of blips in, in the wake of the financial crisis, for example. And as I mentioned, they're put to various different roles. One of the reasons that we explore in the book for why they are used so widely today in the UK government in particular, and this goes back to what Lord Agnew was also stating, was that 
many government capacities or many government functions have themselves been hollowed out through outsourcing over a long period of time, which means that there is not this capacity to deliver the things or do the things that politicians necessarily want to do. And the default reaction to that rather than invest internally has become to continue using consultancies. Yeah, that was going to be my next question, you know, because I know that in you write in the book that this phenomenon actually started way back in the 80s with Ronald Reagan and, and Thatcher. So it'd be great just to hear a bit more about the origins of consultancy as a, as a practice and, you know, where we got this idea that consultants working at these massive firms knew more than people working on the ground in, for example, the NHS. Yeah, great question. So the emergence of the consulting industry is really really goes back to the end of the 19th century. But I won't take your listeners all the way back there. I think where it really becomes important was in the wake of the Second World War, where some of the companies that had emerged before that were able to get these kind of big military contracts, were able to become big players as companies became bigger and internationalized and spread to Europe, for example, that's where we see the kind of growth of these consulting giants. Their use in government really took off actually in the 1960s. But as you mentioned, it was really in the 1980s with the emergence of neoliberal policies, which as your listeners are probably familiar with, saw the kind of mass privatization of state and enterprises, the liberalization of financial markets that their use in government took off. So an interesting statistic that we use, or quite an astounding statistic that we use in the book, is that during Margaret Thatcher's tenure, government use of consultancy increased from just £6 million a year to £246 million a year. So governments before Thatcher were using consultancies. Tony Benn even used consultancies uh, in government, and he wrote about this in his in his diaries and other work as a way of helping to legitimize some of the decisions that he was having difficulty implementing in the civil service. But it was really after them that it took off. We also point to, crucially, and I think this is probably the more important part of the history of the consulting industry in the UK and how we ended up where we are today. We look at the role of the third way and the paradigms that were introduced during New Labour, so during Tony Blair's reign from the late 1990s, in helping to entrench this idea that governments weren't necessarily very good at doing things themselves. They were there, they were important for steering the economy for setting the goals to be the kind of arbiter of what was valuable in the economy. But when it came to actually doing stuff, this could still be left to the private sector. And this idea of a government that steers but does not row, I think has been probably the most influential in the way that consultancies are used in government today. Mm, I've not heard that phrase before, but it um, certainly makes sense. So what's really the problem here? I know some people would argue that these companies are paid a lot of money because, you know, they're providing a service that no one else can. But your book argues that that isn't right. So so let's get into the why. Yeah. So this is the argument that the sector itself kind of comes with and that other academics have, other economists have also argued that the scale of the consulting market, how big it is, accurately reflects the value that these companies are creating for the economy and for society. Now, this is a really important argument and one that we delve into deeply in the book. We show in the book that actually we can understand part of how these companies are able to continue accruing these huge profits and securing these 
these massive contracts in government and business as a form of rents that they achieve through this historic reputation that they have as historic brokers of expertise over and above other forms of knowledge and experience in our economies. And what I mean by that is what we've already discussed, this kind of default assumption that if there is a challenge, if an organization and government doesn't know how to do something, then the way to go about doing that is just to turn to a consulting firm rather than perhaps looking internally or at other types of organizations like civil society organizations, trade unions as a source of knowledge that they can use to help kind of overcome those challenges. The implications of this then are that organizations which have come to rely on consulting companies themselves continue to become hollowed out or infantilized, that's the term we use, in business and in government. This also obfuscates the normal processes of accountability that we would expect. So we look at in the book at how government's use of consultancies helps to shield potentially controversial decisions that have been made by politicians. And we also see this in businesses where actually consultancies might be wielded, for example, in negotiations with trade unions as a way of undermining the kind of conditions that have already been decided at their bargaining table. Mm. So there are some things, though, that we, you know, we don't want the government to do for themselves, right? And I'm just trying to kind of draw this line in my head, you know, how do we how do we understand that? The, the, the things that should, in fact, be contracted out and to whom? And then the things that should be kept in-house in an ideal world. Do you have thoughts on that? I think politics today, right, really centres around the things that government should do, the types of policies that government should adopt. And my view, my personal view, and what I'm developing in my kind of wider research as well, is how we have lost the arguments or or how we have lost the debates about how government does things itself. And part of what we look at in the book relates to this. So we just assume that, you know, governments always know best when it comes to decisions about where public spending gets distributed and how these kind of policies get implemented. But that should really be viewed as part of politics itself, as part of the process of contesting what government and the state is. So there there are many ways to implement a policy. And why aren't we talking more, for example, about the different sources of knowledge, the different sources of capacity that exist across our economies and our societies that might be fairer ways of achieving these means and might be also more effective ways of achieving these means. So what I'm talking about is when government, for example, wants to pursue a policy or implement something and it doesn't know how to do that, it should look to perhaps other actors. And this is what I was mentioning before. It's frontline employees, it's other employees that exist within the organization, as well as organized groups such as civil society groups and trade unions, also academics as a source of expertise. A big problem, as we discuss in the book with relying on consultancies, is also that they have these conflicts of interest that come from both their business model. So these are organizations that are dependent on continuing to secure contracts for their very growth. Also, because many of those contracts that they secure are coming from actors that government is trying to regulate or perhaps might have or often do have conflicts of interest with the policies that governments are trying to implement as well. Mm. So so is it really a a bit of a vicious cycle there where, you know, the government loses in-house expertise and also fails to build relationships with other sources of expertise by consistently hiring consultants and maybe the same ones? And then 
that means that when future problems arise, only those consultants can fix them. Exactly. So it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And this is one of the things that we talk about in the book. We use the analogy in the book of a therapist who wants to keep their client in therapy forever as kind of underpinning or characterizing the relationship, the business model that many consulting companies and particularly the big three and the big four kind of operate under. So this sort of incentive does not exist in, for example, a civil society organization that is set up to represent its members needs and then this has as as you were just describing these consequences as well of these kind of networks of knowledge and this kind of mutualistic relationship between different organizations across our economy is not able to develop well as you've mentioned we don't want governments to do everything when a business as well or a government or any organization faces a challenge then they certainly should be looking to other actors across the economy and across society as a source of capacity, as a source of expertise. But the the issue is that today, often the default assumption is that this expertise will exist in the heads of consultants at McKinsey or Deloitte, rather than, for example, as I mentioned, in a a civil society organisation, academia, or somewhere else where it's more likely to be, and which are not kind of blighted by these conflicts of interest. Mm, yeah, let's talk more about conflict of interest, because that was going to be my, my next question. So there was a sense during the pandemic that the way that consultancies were being doled out wasn't a, totally above board. And it kind of made me think when you were just saying, you know, that this is a, a, a self-fulfilling prophecy that, you know, when there have been opportunities for new service providers or or whatever, new potential partners for government to come in over the recent years, it certainly seems that they've gone to friends and family and people who live on their street on their you know neighborhood whatsapp group like matt hancock rather than you know further afield so how much do the public know about what services these consultancies are actually providing and how that maybe relates to i guess a little bit of a revolving door for people who work in the government and consulting firms and happen to live on their street and all that kind of stuff so one kind of conscious strategy that all of the big three and the big four companies kind of partake in is that they have developed these really extensive alumni networks. They invest a lot of money in maintaining them. So the companies tend to operate with a kind of recruitment model that is described as the in or out recruitment model. So they recruit thousands of people at the really junior levels, but very few people make it to the top of the consultancies themselves and become the kind of directors or partners. This works very well in the in the kind of wider interests of the consulting companies because it means that when those thousands of people who have been recruited at these more junior levels as graduates, for example, go on to work in other businesses, that the consultancies continue to have clients or are more likely to have kind of contacts across the economy that make it far easier for them to secure these contracts. Now, I, I think some of the things that you, you were mentioning around the kind of wider issues with procurement during the pandemic don't necessarily apply in the same way to how the consulting sector was contracted during the pandemic. So we see, you know, the the use of kind of PPE providers, for example, but it's all part of the same issue of the hollowing out of the state or the infantilization of the state. Because if we assume, for example, the NHS kind of lacks expertise, that the kind of knowledge that exists in the head of people who have been doing procurement of PPE in the NHS since its inception is no match for the private sector, then it becomes a default assumption that we're going to go to the private sector instead. 
the kind of concomitant hollowing out of the public sector also makes it very difficult for the public sector and, and health sector organizations to properly scrutinize and hold to account these contracts as they are being developed. So this is not just an issue of the public sector and the NHS losing the ability to do these things themselves, but it's also an issue with them being able to contract properly when that needs to happen or when that is happening. Um, So the normal accounts and balances that we would like to see in a public sector bureaucracy or, or in government then become themselves infantilized. And that makes it far easier for the kind of issues that we saw during the pandemic with contracts seemingly being handed out to politicians, friends and that sort of thing. It makes it far easier for that to happen. Mm, Yeah, I mean, this conversation reminds me in lots of ways of of previous podcasts that we've done with folks like Sahil Dutter and others kind of talking about the rise of managerialism and, and I guess the very notion that a person of a certain from a certain company or of a certain background or both is just inherently better placed to make decisions about anything um, than someone who, as you say, has you know maybe worked in that line of work for decades or or someone whose job it has been you know as you just said with PPE and the NHS to think this stuff through as their lives work, which t- which to me kind of boggles the mind that we've actually gotten here because that sounds so nonsensical, but also I can see why it would be. Alluring, you know, especially for politicians coming into government and wanting the idea of a safe pair of hands and someone who's going to just come in and be reassuring and tell them tell them what to do and they're not going to have to worry too much about being overly scrutinised for those decisions themselves. So far, we've talked mostly about consultancies' impact on our government and, and public sector, but plenty of private companies hire consultants as well. So what effect does this have, in your opinion, on our kind of broader economy and society? So there are a few things. I just wanted to touch actually on something you mentioned at the end, which I thought was really interesting that came out of interviews that we did with people who'd worked or with someone who'd worked in the test and trace program during the pandemic in government. And it was his perception that because at the outset of the pandemic, the UK had been seen to implement lockdown very late, for example, that in order to be seen that it was doing a lot, the government essentially just chucked a lot of money at these big consultancies as a way to say, look, we're spending a lot of money. This is a war effort. We're taking this very seriously. And the implications of that was then that there were lots or far too many of these consultants roving around within government, within the test and trace program that were often taking time away. And this is kind of words from our interviews that were taking time away from the actual work of people internally. The fear among politicians of looking like they're not doing the right thing is one of the reasons why they will then contract consultancies. But this has this adverse effect of kind of not utilizing or even slowing down the actual workings of government. In terms of how they're used in business, again, this is where it becomes a bit complicated. And, and, and we had to be very careful in the book because the roles that they are put to, the roles that consultancy companies are put to across the economy vary massively. And what we see often in business is that they will be contracted, as I mentioned previously, as a way to help legitimize the decision of a business executive or someone else within the organization. We interviewed someone who had worked across kind of very big companies in business as a management consultant for one of the big four companies. And he said to us that the thing that he saw all the time was that these consultancies and people like him were brought in to give the stamp of approval. So literally just to 
to make it so that to provide a report, to do the analysis, to give the slide deck, the presentation that confirmed the decision of a senior manager so that when they went to their manager, they were able to say, look, it's got the McKinsey or the Deloitte stamp of approval. This is the best thing for us to do, even if it actually wasn't the kind of right solution for the organization itself. Now, this then becomes a problem when we look at other forms of accountability and forms of democracy that exist within businesses, no matter how constrained they are, because if that decision that has been made contradicts with, for example, or might under mind the conditions that a trade union has negotiated with the company for its members, it can be a way of helping to push it through, even though that agreement is in place. Okay. I think, as you mentioned earlier, the consultancies, the the big four or whatever, you know, also have these graduate schemes. And I wanted to just ask a little bit more about that because you know, Deloitte is bringing on 700 new employees through these schemes this year. And you touched on it then, but I'm wondering if you can elaborate on the impact that this kind of recruitment of so many consultants has on the jobs market, you know, as the rise of consultants continues, has it changed what we think of as an aspirational job? And is it, yeah, is it something that's really starting to affect the jobs market? Yeah, so this is something I've thought a lot about because, you know, I'm 30 and I've had lots of friends who went into consulting kind of at the outset of our 20s when we finished our undergraduates um, and some who've just come out of it completely disillusioned. You know, I'm still I'm still friends with uh, with people after writing this book. But I think one thing that's interesting is that many of them would agree or do agree with the arguments that we put forward about the problems with the sector. And they themselves have become very disillusioned with things that they have seen when they've been on the ground in their client organizations as consultants. And that's certainly something that we've seen in interviews as well. Now, I think it's really important to get across just how much consultancies promise to graduates when they are recruiting them for these consulting schemes. You know, if you go onto the recruitment websites, and I would actually encourage your listeners to do this because it's very interesting. They promise the world, they promise that this is going to be an organization where you're going to continue to get development as an individual. Um, Your career is going to benefit massively. You're going to get decent salary, which everyone knows is important in places in cities like London where rents are extortionate. And you're going to be able to keep learning. And more than that, you're probably going to be able to do something that creates public purpose. That is, for example, you know, helping the green transition. These are all things that we read in the recruitment materials of these companies. They also invite many students starting to think about what they might do after they finish their degree. They can go on a training program or do an internship with one of these companies that really helps to kind of reinforce a lot of these messages. So we do know that many people who have done these graduate programs do become very disillusioned. And the Financial Times had a piece recently actually about disillusionment among young consultants. But at the same time, I think it's worth reflecting on how actually many jobs that exist in the wider economy are unable to and don't promise the kind of things that consulting graduate schemes promise. So we we do talk about in the book, the kind of brain drain from the public sector where in the UK, still many people see working for the public sector as kind of something that they might not necessarily aspire to. It's something it's a graduate scheme that they might get on, for example, if they don't get onto one of the big banking or, or a consulting graduate scheme, if they're coming from a Russell Group University or similar. And that's a problem in itself. And that feeds into, again, these broader narratives that have really become dominant since the era of neoliberalism, where the idea that the 
public sector can play a role in our society and that communities are a valuable actor in kind of helping to meet the green transition means that many people turn away from a potential job in the public sector or in their communities. And of course, the kind of stability that is potentially offered within the consulting sector itself is often not there in the public sector. We've seen massive public sector pay freezes. Contracts are often fixed term, which is not the case in the consulting industry. So to understand, I think, why this is such an attractive proposition to so many young people, we also have to look at what is happening in the rest of the economy and the kind of poor jobs that are often on offer as an alternative. Mm, yeah, I mean, it's certainly a bigger picture, isn't it, than just uh, what's being advertised on the, the websites in the recruitment section. Um, but that's super, super helpful. So you have also written that consultants have been at the highest tables of decision making for actually a really long time during many of the past decades, biggest global upheavals. So can you give us a few examples of that? Yeah. So we look at, for example, at the role of consultants in Europe in the wake of the financial crisis. Consultancies had been involved, particularly the auditing consultancies, had been involved in auditing many of the banks that went bust across Europe and and in the United States in particular. But despite this, in the wake of the financial crisis, they were contracted to, for example, stress test national banks and help to implement or help to oversee the kind of austerity programs that many governments were forced to introduce. And this tracks a kind of wider pattern of the types of advice that consultancies have provided governments and and helped to implement in governments throughout the kind of final decades of the 20th century. So we did see that when, for example, governments in the 1980s during the sovereign debt crisis were forced to turn to the World Bank and the, and the IMF for loans that would help them to kind of overcome or ensure that they didn't encounter or go into sovereign debt, that they would then, as a condition of receiving these loans, be forced to introduce what were called structural adjustment programs, which uh, resulted in the privatization of their state-owned enterprises, their public services, and the liberalization of their financial markets. And often, management consultancies were brought in, and sometimes it was a condition of the loan itself that they would be brought in to help oversee this restructuring process. And we saw similar patterns in the wake of the financial crisis. Mm. So how does the UK's use of uh, consultants compare to other countries then, if you could say more about that? Because I'm interested in, in what makes a country or a government particularly susceptible to this kind of problem? Are we unique? And are there other countries that have a a more healthy relationship to consulting? Can there be a world in which they coexist in a productive way? Yeah, the UK is globally one of the biggest markets for consulting, management consulting, and, and for outsourcing more generally for public sector outsourcing. There have been some studies that have grouped countries by the type of capitalism that they have, and Anglo-Saxon economies, so that's like the United States, the UK, New Zealand, Australia, Canada, tend to come out on top in terms of how much they use consultants. And some people have put that as being a consequence of the fact that it was in these countries that the implementation of new public management and related neoliberal reforms were most successful. So the UK certainly has kind of been one of the more prolific users of consultants. But we do see general trends across 
Europe and also around the world in the kind of growing use of consultants. So even in Denmark, where many people, I think outside of Denmark, view the country as being this kind of social democratic haven or or whatever, even in Denmark, the government's use of consultants had increased massively, so much so that by 2019, it actually introduced a cap on management consulting spend in government to try to reduce different departments use of consultants and it also set up an in-house public sector consultancy to try to reduce the kind of immediate capacity deficit that they believed would result the biggest growing markets for the consulting industry are in developing countries and i think that this is something that we should all be looking more at because we see that in these countries consultancies are trying to get a foot in the door in similar ways to how they've behaved for example in the UK when there were restrictions introduced in the wake of 2010 and the coalition governments coming to power on the government's use of consultancies we saw consultancies beginning to offer to provide services for free or at far below market rates And they did this as a way of trying to get a foot in the door and maintain a kind of presence so that when the big contracts came back, they were able to secure them or they they felt that they would have more of a chance of securing them. We're seeing similar things happening in other countries around the world that maybe do not have such extensive markets at the moment. And that's a strategy of uh, them kind of getting a foot in the door so that they can hopefully grow. Mm, And I can certainly see how, you know, in the kind of in the neo-colonial global order that we have, uh, it would be particularly effective for a yeah a, a renowned, I guess, Western company to go to the global south and say, uh, we have expertise and we're going to tell you what to do. It wouldn't be the first time. Uh, now, would it? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Okay. So I want to talk briefly about the climate crisis, because I know in the book you have a chapter on consulting and the climate crisis and how they're interrelated. So could you talk a bit more about that connection? Yeah, so in the past couple of years, we have seen massive investments across all of the big four and the big three and other consulting companies as well in their climate consulting divisions, such that one estimate suggests that climate consulting or the climate consulting market will be worth around $8 billion globally by 2028. Again, that's probably a very conservative estimate, but everything suggests that there has been kind of huge growth in this sector already and that the companies are all investing in kind of developing these new divisions. So McKinsey in 2021 set up McKinsey Sustainability, which was its new kind of climate consulting wing. We also saw Boston Consulting Group became the first ever partner of COP. There were also lots of acquisitions of what we might call specialist or boutique climate consultancies. So smaller firms that had um, previously kind of sought to develop particular expertise in environmental economics modeling or, or something related to this or ESG, these companies then became acquired by the bigger companies. Um, so this has been a huge area of growth. In the book, we again interrogate why this has happened and why this has happened now, given that we know that the climate crisis has been happening since the 1970s, at least, and it's, it's become kind of an issue for the public or in public awareness, at least since the 1990s. So we interrogate why now? Why is this happening now? And we argue or we propose 
that it is because there is so much more scrutiny on the things that companies are doing. And this has come in the wake of the Paris Agreement. This has come in the wake of work by activists and campaign groups in the global south, but also in Europe, are all putting pressure on governments, which are then putting pressure on companies to show that they are doing something as part of the collective ambition to arrest climate breakdown. And we propose that the kind of rise or the growth in services and products that consulting companies are offering in climate consulting is a factor of the companies trying to kind of show and governments trying to show that they are actually kind of seriously part of the green transition and they are really doing things that are helping to kind of slow down their emissions. So we look at ESG, which stands for Environmental Social Governance, and the growth of the frameworks and the kind of advice that consultancies are offering around this as one of the ways that companies and governments are trying to show that they are doing more than they potentially are, or at least trying to depict what they are doing in the most favorable light possible, rather than, for example, what ESG frameworks kind of on paper are supposed to do, which is increase transparency and encourage companies to disclose kind of the truth about their emissions or the facts of their emissions. We also look at the ways that governments are contracting consultancies to provide advice on their climate policies. So we saw one of the cases that we look at in the book was the Australian government's contracting of McKinsey to help develop its national net zero strategy, which was since found to be completely full of holes. You know, climate analysts almost immediately after it was published found that it actually didn't get Australia to net zero by the deadline that the report itself had set. And they also pointed to the fact that McKinsey had in the past consulted with 43 of the 100 biggest emitters globally, and that this was potentially a huge conflict of interest. You know, I think even if as McKinsey themselves have said that there is this kind of strict wall between the advice that they give to governments and the advice that they give to their clients in the fossil fuel industry, it's very important for citizens to kind of make up their own minds about how much they trust that that is possible as part of their holding government to account on their climate strategies as well. Mm, I suppose it's, it seems more of, of the same of what you were saying earlier around kind of that rubber stamp or legitimizing effect that these firms can have and the extent to which that can really, you know, mask a lot of things that are going on under the surface that the public at large should be more aware of. So just to just to end then, I'd be really keen to hear, you know, what do you think are some of the alternatives for the government? How can they move away from the reliance on consulting? And, and what does a better picture look like, really, now that we're all kind of finally becoming aware, I guess, of just how flawed the current one is? Yeah, so in the book, we offer some concrete proposals based on things that some governments and local governments around the world are currently doing that seem to be working quite well. Although the kind of turn away from consultancies is only kind of a very recent phenomenon and it is only happening in, in a very small number of places and often at a very small scale. So we have to take that caveat. And so I'll talk a bit about them. But the big picture transformation that we think needs to happen is, again, challenging these ideas that many people have and that exist across government and business, that government is not able to create value for society itself and that as much as possible, it should get out of the way and, and let the market do the job. And we say that this needs to be challenged because if that isn't challenged, then these kind of other concrete proposals that we have may just become kind of tweaks to a system that is not working very well. 
the consulting industry represents a systemic problem or is a manifestation of a systemic problem with the relationship between government and business and the rest of society. And if that is not transformed, then unfortunately, as uh, important as other kind of initiatives may be, they probably won't go far enough. So we need some systemic solutions as well. But that said, as I mentioned, there are some concrete things that governments around the world have been doing as a way of kind of moving away from a dependence on consultancies and investing in their public sector capacity. So we have seen the development of in-house public sector consultancies, which at least in the short term, where governments have become reliant on consultancies to do particular tasks, these might be a way of them being able to actually kind of become less dependent or move away from this immediate dependence that they have. But more generally, we would like to see kind of forms of organization where when governments encounter a challenge or or when they recognize that there really isn't this knowledge internally and, and that there is a genuine need to kind of go externally, which is very often going to be the case. And it's important, I think, that governments and other organizations don't try to do everything themselves. They think more seriously about the types of organizations that they're contracting and potentially go to other governments or other civil society organizations, to trade unions, to academia, to places where this knowledge might exist, where the conflicts of interest and the business models that we see can be counteractive or, or cannot have the effect that consultancies kind of promise uh, do not exist. Okay, so there there is a way forward. At um, as always with the the end of the new economics podcast, it's not uh, it's not the simplest, but it's very achievable. Um, thank you so much, Rosie, for taking us on this journey. I think uh, myself and all of the listeners will feel very enlightened um, around what can be a very kind of murky and confusing topic. That is all we've got time for on this episode of the new economics podcast. Uh, Rosie Collington, thanks so much for joining me. If people want to find out more about your work. Where can they go? Uh, what should they read? If you want to find out more about my work, um, I need to finish my PhD. So I will get back to you on that. Um, now, I do regularly write for The Guardian and other outlets. I'm unfortunately too active on Twitter. I need to spend less time on Twitter, but I do occasionally share things that I'm doing there. But you should also definitely check out the kind of wider work of my colleagues at the UCL Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose, where we are one of the few organizations i would say one of the few organizations in academia certainly that are trying to confront some of the big questions that we have in our economies and trying to think of a way forwards um, that is both grounded in communities and organizations and the work that is happening at that level but is also you know being done within a research center as well mm, and can you remind us of the name of the book one more time it is the big con how the consulting industry weakens our businesses infantilizes our governments and warps our economies fantastic thank you so much that is it for today's new economics podcast but we'll be back soon with more if you've enjoyed this episode please tell someone about it as always you can drop us a line with your comments and questions we're at nef on twitter the new economics podcast is brought to you by the new economics foundation produced by becky malone margaret welsh and katrina gaffney i'm aisha thomas smith stay safe